Hey, hello, welcome to Normal World. I'm Dave Landau, and as usual with me is Angela. Hi. How are you today? I'm so good. Glad to be here. Yes, and Garrett is out. He is uh, signing autographs with Nerdrotic, but we do have a very special guest. You may know him from House of Pain as well as La Coca Nostra. Please welcome Danny Boy O'Connor. Glad to be here. Seriously, thank you for coming. I can't thank you enough. I'm a huge fan. Thank you. Me too. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you faking it. Hey, listen. (laughs) Make it till you make it, right? Yes, exactly. I'm really glad you're here. Um, I wanted to talk to you. A lot of people don't may not know this. You own the house from the movie The Outsiders. I do, and I just actually walking through this incredible studio that you guys are broadcasting out of. I just saw a like jaw dropping collection that Glenn Beck has of, of. can I say? I yeah, go know. ahead. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I saw the Archie Bunker set. Am I like? It's pretty remarkable, and to say the least, I, I did see the chair and the the table next to it at the Smithsonian, and I know that's from a you know it's different season, but I mean, it. I know that that's just a coming attractions of his collection, so I definitely want to talk to him about that. But yes, I do own the house the from the movie The Outsiders. Um, if you don't know what The Outsiders is, it's based on a book yep. from S.C. Hinton. She wrote this book and published it when she wrote it when she was 15 and a half. She failed English that year and got a D plus in creative writing. And published it under S.E. Hinton. Yeah. So to, in order to throw people off the, the trail that she was a female. Uh, right. Writing about and, a book, of, a group about of boys. Males, about me. Yeah, I met teen gangs and... Um, the book has never been out of print in 55 years. It sold millions upon millions of copies, and it's usually, it's most librarians and English teachers' book of choice when they are re, are having, like, kids read a, a book in seventh grade. It's required reading is what I'm trying to say, and dare I say, not only in the U.S., but in the world, because we have over 33 different covers or translations of the book. So it's, an, it's, it's a phenomenon, and then... In 81, a librarian from Fresno, California, Miss Masikian, and uh, shout out to her and her students, they fell in love with the book and they decided to write. A hundred of their students wrote a letter to Francis Ford Coppola, of all people. Yep. And encouraged him to look at this and turn it, and if they, if he liked it, perhaps turn it into a movie. And I remember asking Miss Masikian, Miss Masikian, why Francis Ford Coppola of all people? Since you know, at that time he was known for The Godfather One and Two and Apocalypse Now. And yes. she said, Danny, he did such a masterful job with the Black Stallion that it, staying true to the book that we thought he'd be a shoe in. And uh, he got the book. He got the letters. It was a series of things that literally, it, it, it's it's spectacular and 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 miraculous that he even got it and i it would take hours to unpack all of this but he did get it he did read the book he did fall in love with it and he did decide to make it so he made that movie in 82 it came out in march of 83 it launched the careers or you definitely like enhanced the careers of the brat pack which was matt dillon tom cruise ralph macchio yep. c thomas howell Rob patrick, Lowe, swayze. patrick swayze emilio estevez yep. diane lane leaf garrett who's arguably already a star you know from the he 70s was probably the biggest, biggest name, name at the time yeah, i'm yeah. sure yeah yeah, yeah yeah and um the movie was actual i don't want to say a flop but it didn't do great in the box office it didn't last that long but like a lot of things from the 80s, it, 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 the VHS comes out and, and VCRs, and yep. we start to watch these things at home, and then cable TV starts to become the thing. 
and it finds its audience there. And so it becomes a cult classic. And now it's just a time-honored, you know, American classic. Yep. And I loved it. I saw it at 13 and a half, maybe 14. Okay. Probably like, how old was I? I mean, I know how old. I'm trying to think what grade that is, but I probably saw it in like... Middle school, maybe yeah, what, freshman like, in high school, if yeah, that. No, nah, it was like, it was yeah, middle like school. the last year of yeah. ninth grade. And I remember thinking for the first time, like, there's my story on screen in a different era but the way i felt like disconnected separate and apart from you know um it's not like the catcher in the rye shoot reagan thing it's like the actual next to you <laughs> you know because there is that the, it is because there was the, the attempts at those books but then there was this movie that actually it, it, it i don't know i felt something when i watched it too i showed it to my son probably three months ago who's eight you know and i wanted him to see it because there is something there that i think you can learn at all ages but yeah, there is a connection that I think you feel that's more modern, even though it does take place in a in the great sixties. Yeah, right. And for me, it's just that's what it, I think. I the original appeal was it was stylistically, it looked like the stuff my mother used to brag about my father about. You know, my father went to prison when I was two months old, and I've really oh, wow. met him twice, and he was murdered when I was seventeen. So, Jeez. my when I see that, when I see that era, the late fifties, you know, early sixties with denim and. And old cars, there were new cars to them, but you know, and you see like right. Thunderbirds and, and Mustangs and, and, and Corvairs and Corvettes and all of the things. And I was like, man, this is like, this is cool. And, and the takeaway I got from that movie when I first saw it was that if the best it gets is just finding your family or building your family outside of the family that you were dealt, and if that ain't enough, then you can go out and find your tribe, your right. people, and mutually bond in that way that I've got your back, you got mine. I mean, there's a name for it. It's called the gang, <laughs> you know? Some yeah. kids find it in sports if they have guidance True. and if they have, you know, I didn't have that. So for me, I was looking for the gang and I found it, unfortunately, unfortunately at the time. I mean, right. it, it, it gives and it takes. Well, and then with Coppola, I know he said that movie was about family. You know, people talk about The Godfather being about family, but he said that movie was really about family because that was what they had to find as a unit because none of them had it. And the lack thereof because their family died in, in a tragic accident while coming back from a picnic. On Which you can relate to very well. And, and sure. then who did you relate to most? Uh, in the movie, two people. So that's okay. a great question. And I ask kids all the time and, and, and the, the answers obviously vary. Um, I wanted to be Matt Dillon or the Dallas Winston character so okay. bad it hurt, but I was, he was a little bit older and I related to the Johnny Cade sensitive okay. side. Yeah. And I loved his greaser. He just looked like a real greaser. And Matt Dillon was like the archetype, you know, like the, the archetypal, whatever the word I'm trying to say, you know, like he's yes. like the, he was the Brando of my generation, you know, like he was that cool, tough guy, whatever, whatever. Oh, for sure. All the characters I liked, but those two were the, the, the ones that stood out the most. And yeah. And he had more of that dangerous appeal to him too. He had, there was something in a, he was a little bit crazier than everybody else. He was a little bit more, I think there was something to him too, that it was an antisocial that wasn't his fault. Yeah. You know, it was just sort of the hand he was dealt. Yeah. And I like that he was like he he had like Johnny's back in that way. Like he, he favored Johnny and he was and that was the that, that was another like you know, Pony didn't like that fact because Pony you know, Pony Boy saw that Dally was trouble for Johnny and Johnny was like, I don't care. I, I accept him, you know, unapologetically and you know, in the way like animals love you unconditionally. Little Johnny was like 
Dally could do no wrong. I know he's rough around the edges. He, right. You know, and he explains that much at the drive-in when he's like, "He's all right." He, you know, if you hung around him a little, you, you, you'd understand. See, he was advocating for that big brother friendship and him as a person. So, and I, I think we all, and I'm sure, you, obviously, you did, but we all grew up with that person who you know is crazy, but you <laughs> have your back. I may have been that person who was crazy. Yeah, and you I are. You're six six. Back. I needed you in my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. I, you, you know what? It's funny, but listen. We, and when I say we, I guess Generation X, you know, we grew up, like, I was raised by TV, I was raised by music, I was raised by movies, like, those were, those were the big brothers and the, and the, the, the marching orders came from, like, you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, 1982, one of my favorites, like, Mike Damone, shout out to Robert Romanus, my good friend, met him years later, and we, you know, we, we, oh, really, that's awesome, yeah, it's my man, um, but his five, all the tickets. His, yeah, yo, and his five-point plan, if you know the movie, you know, he, he breaks it down to Ratner, who has no luck with the ladies on how to, how to do this. Anybody at 13, you know, sees this and is like, this is the big brother I never had. Here's the plan. And the plan was flawed, you know, but it's better than no plan. And so, like, that's just like a, one example of, like, I was taking bits and pieces from all of the stuff that I liked. The way this person talked, the way this person walked, how you dressed, how this one, whatever. And then you build your version of you or I build, I don't know what you did, but I built that. And it started with like Fonzie. It started with Sean Anna. Like I came from New York, was transplanted into Los Angeles. There was culture shock. You were born in Brooklyn, right? Born in Brooklyn and raised in LA. And then I went back every summer to New Jersey and New York until I was about 13. And right after I seen The Outsiders, I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I got this. You yeah. know, I don't have to go back. You don't have to, you know. And I had a great time going back and forth. And it was literally like having the internet before having the internet. You know, I'd leave L.A. dressed in OP and, and vans and the sneaker. You know, the, 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 the of course. shoot. But you say that, but a lot of people didn't know back then because it was a local Los Angeles family-run business and i think it was like mail order only back in the days if you could order it from like skateboarder magazine or surfer magazine there was no standalone it must be because i had shops had them and bmx shops may have had them see i had skater friends and friends that surfed but yeah and that was why i must have known east yeah my cousin's uh new jersey my my uncle ran bally's so we would go there when i was a real little kid i used to surf at at point pleasant and and really okay lavalette and and the ocean hut and yeah i had cousins they lived in brick township so i would be there every summer and i would we would go to the jersey shore and we would literally surf i mean it sucks because there's like jellyfish and crabs and oh yeah i remember they just all be sitting <laughs> you like good. with sticks and stuff yeah and helmet crabs and those, those yeah. things are looking like uh yeah all that to say i'm an amalgamation of all of those like influences of like the 70s and 80s man like sitting there eating sugared up cereal watching tv relentlessly and like you build the i built like the type Carmine Raguzzo, like all of those characters uh, from Taxi, uh, what's his name? Um, Tony oh. Danza's character. Like I always gravitated to those Saturday Night Fever and John Travolta when he was in uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. Like I always liked the greaser. Oh, of course. You know, well, I always liked that guy who felt like he was probably from back east, hmm? or was clearly from you know the East Coast. That's how Mike Damone looked to me. He was like, you know, kind of like, want to buy a watch? You know, right. hey, is the mustache coming in rat? You know, he had his whole, and I, that was me in a, in a perfect world. Like, that's who I, I modeled myself after. And it's just funny that, you know, this thing stays with you for years. And I look back and I said, like, I didn't have, I didn't have an older brother. I didn't have 
a, a father figure in the home. And it's, it's the source of a lot of the problems too. And I can, that's a whole other topic and whatever, but I'm, I'm a firm believer because I speak to kids a lot now because right. of this museum. And I can see clearly the difference a father in the home makes, man. And uh, I didn't have that. So I built it through all of those pop culture, you know, references and, and, and all of that. But Because uh, well, you're turning to gang life, I assume. Yes. You know, pretty young. And then, uh-huh. of course, you're turning to, I assume, drugs and alcohol. Alcohol originally. Alcohol yeah. originally. Stayed away from drugs for years until I didn't. And then you're, as I saw House of Pain was working class Irish. Yeah. Uh, or at least tough Irish, and I'm Irish and Italian, so that was kind of how I related to it. I, I mean, I was, uh, it was 92 when you had Jump Around. This is correct. Yeah, so I was 10, and then I remember loving that song, you know, and watching that. And so when you were kind of molding into that, did you feel that was a character? Like, were you partying, or did you feel that was a big part of yourself? No, it was a big part of myself, and it was it was also, you know, and I don't speak about this a lot, only because it just never comes up, and that you, you've segued into it perfectly. Thank you. I, uh, my mother had an incredible record collection growing up and it was all Motown and it was all from Detroit. So I appreciate that a lot. Listen, the world appreciates that Motown sound a lot. So so there's nothing else like it. And some of that, you know, was disco as well, which came after that. And then if you, if you know, then obviously, you know, that then hip hop kind of gets birthed out of the disco thing, you know, it's like the high BPMs and people toasting over the. Sure. So I was predisposed to that. But when I got to California and kids were like, yo, you like that stuff, punk? Like they were calling me Disco Dan. And like back then, those were fighting words. It was like a slur. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It was like right. a racial slur. So for another white guy to call you Disco Dan, they were implying something else. Right. And I was like, what's wrong with like, I grew up in the roller rinks as well in California. I listened to the Gap Band. It was a wonderful, you just, Charlie Wilson just got a star on the Walk of Fame. And that's another incredible story from rags to riches oh, to yeah. living homeless and a drug addict to now sober and and starring you know from the gap band if anybody doesn't know and one of my favorite you know r&b acts of all time of course all that to say um i hip-hop for me was like it was like a normal progression what was the question again <laughs> Oh no! Like what? <laughs> I forget. What like you're... when you became that character for like kind of. Oh, so, okay. Irish, so no. So I from... loved. I, I always. I, I've always been involved. Like I've always had a love for like that kind of soul music. You know, like that kind of stuff that hits like the way it does, bass lines and and, and drum beats. So hip hop was like a natural progression. But at that time, if you were white and suburban kid and you wanted to go to like any functions in Los Angeles, this was like the height of like Bloods and Crips and and all black neighborhoods, all black venues. And you wanted to go to those spots. You had to be like thorough. You had to really be about your business. And and I was always, always, but you know, like I'm trying to think how young, but I was always about my business. Let me just, let, let's just keep it 100. And I'm not trying to sell anything. Anybody who knows me from back then knows, yeah. you know? No, I mean, this is the year that Menace to Society came out to give people an idea of what it was like. Oh, and I was going back way before that. Oh, yeah. I'm I, going I, back to breakdancing and, and... Oh, and, yeah, and I mean, but I just mean in 92 for that hit. No, of course, but I was hitting the spots since at least 85, 86. Which, in, I mean, and then you're looking at that, that's in, in Detroit and then LA. I mean, this is like a crack epidemic era, too, where there's a lot, a lot of violence 100%. around. 100%. Yeah. And so it was absolutely the crack epidemic. And I lived in the San Fernando Valley and we had a thing called the country club and across the street was Sherman Square roller rink and 
both of the, the roller rinks had been like it, it fizzled out a long time prior to that a couple of years before so they used right. any kind of roller rink as like a new event center like we'll take anything please book us so a lot of the hip-hop and punk rock stuff would book there and then across the street was the the country club which was in like a, a semi like it was it was no it was just a rock like legendary spot so okay. at two in the morning these two crowds would empty out and then be like facing off wanting to kill each other that's how separated everything was back then right so that's why like it, my mind is like but i almost like that it's over music though it was over everything well bro. yeah that's you true, could get true. mashed Color out bro yeah. for just the wrong t-shirt the wrong band on your t-shirt right. you could get mashed that's why like listen i you know, you go, not that I've been to a mall. Well, actually, it wasn't a mall, just not to. But I see kids now with Ramon shirts and they got faux hawks and, you know, they're, yeah. they're three. Like, yeah, where they, I'm from, you got spit on and called the F word. And I'm not talking about, you know. Oh, I know exactly. It was, yeah. a, and, and, and you just, it was a badge of honor. So what now what? Yeah, whatever, bro. Like, you know, they're throwing stuff from the top, you know, they're throwing Slurpees down like in, in, in you know. Weird science, you know, they're pouring stuff on your head because you're, you are just a target if you did that back then. Now everything is like whatever, whatever. But back then you had to pay a price if you wanted that. And I loved hip hop so much. I was willing to go to those spots and just risk it. Right. And I got in a lot of fights back then. I was handy with my, I was nice with my hands, a little string bean, but I was quick. And I was, I was always down to fight. So everybody knew no matter what, you're going to get a fight from me. And as it progressed, Gunplay came involved. At 17, I was arrested for attempted murder for a shooting. So I was, and I wow. trip out now because I'm dating a girl who has kids that one of them is my age. And I think, what a sweet little boy. Like, nice, good kid. I can't believe at 17, I was already like thorough. The like, I was already getting into like taking penitentiary chances with my yeah. life, doing things that I'm like ashamed of now. But at the time, I was like... The way that people were 17 for Gen X is not the same as now, and I'm very thankful for that. Kids can't even go out the house on no. by themselves. But no. I... And then also, like, you know, let me tell you this, too. When I got to L.A., they were busing. So I ended up getting taken from one part of the valley, and putting, put, they put us all the way over in Pacoima, which is the home of Richie Valens. And, and it was a Chicano neighborhood and a, and, a, and a Latin neighborhood and great people. But the kids were tough. And if you came from a little Lily White school in, in Canoga Park and you went out to Pacoima, those kids were already like already about that life. They were already gangbanging. They were already reading Teen Angel. They were already like, what's up? They were they would test. Yeah. And, yo, you know, I, I, I reacted. <laughs> but a lot of kids got mashed out or got, you know, their lunch money oh. taken from them. And, you know, of course, I was never a bully, but you could never take anything from me except for ass whooping and good advice and probably mostly just ass whoopings. And I'm a tall, skinny sling, string bean, but I'm nice with my hands. And I've always, like I said, so it's good to have the getting, Irish in you. Yeah, it yeah. is. And <laughs> yeah. so getting back to that. So now, now imagine all of these years I'm like in that in that space. You're trying to find a creative outlet i'm sure 100 percent. the beastie boys come and now they got proof of concept i'm like i'm like unreal, at the yeah. time number one beastie fan at that time and then um you know by the time it came you know for most kids were going finishing high school and getting thinking about careers or going to college i had dropped out at ninth grade bro they pushed me forward to 10th i hung out joined the gang started going out every night to nightclubs there were teen nightclubs at 16 you could get in and being tall they didn't care you know right. So I was out all hours, all night, drinking around the clock um, and decided, you know what? My mom's on my back. I know she's throwing me out when I'm 18. So I started a band and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do music. And it was really more of a goof. 
You know, I knew Everlast from high school. We were, you know, around the same areas. He was another dude who was a DJ white. Lethal as well, or did you no, meet him later? No, that was later. Okay. Yeah, that was Eric's DJ before me and him put, you know, I put House of Pain together with him. But at the time, he had just got signed to Ice-T's record label. He was about all about 17 or 18, which was, again, another, like, wow. Like, you're in high school, and Ice-T yeah. is, like, you're in Rhyme Syndicate, and you get a record deal. That was almost like <clears throat> punk rap at the time, if I remember, wasn't it? Eric stuff, no. No? Okay. Eric, no. Eric, not at all. Eric, you know, listen, he rhymed at the highest level even back then. And so I saw his talent. I was like, this guy's great. And this gets to how House of Pain comes about. Okay. But his record comes out, it comes and it goes. There's really no noise made about it. And, and at least, you know, it just didn't. And he got dropped and he moved on. Now, at the time, I was doing a lot of credit card theft. Um, I'll give you just a... We had the ability, I had the ability... I knew someone who had the ability to reprogram stolen information on the back of the cards so we would get sets of those and ideas to match and we would go out and shop and then, and i was doing a lot of that and right. everybody knew me for that and a few other people that i ran with and i ran into everlast and i put him onto that he was he wasn't he was getting kicked out of his house i let him stay with me and my cousin we gave him a set of cards we hooked him up with some gear <laughs> and what i realized with everlast was like look bro you're an incredible talent writer, you know, MC, et cetera, but you were, you have no idea about all the rest of it. And there's a 360 that makes the whole, you know, thing right. And it, it, he was lacking like the crew, the, the, like the, it was just, he was just good at the, the writing and the rapping part, you know what I mean? Straight up it. and down. And but I had a gang and I had a bunch of dudes. I was a leader of men and had a lot of dudes that were yeah. like, Danny boy, this Danny boy, that was in my circle. We were getting money. We were out there wilding out. Yeah. So I was like similar to suicidal tendencies, how like a gang supports like the band and then the band becomes this big phenomenon. Like house of pain was really like the Mickey mouse club, which was our punk rock gang, which is a whole other story. Like I said, it'll take hours to unpack all this, but everybody who knows, knows, you right. can google it it comes up there's a thing in rolling stone magazine in 1986 about valley suburban gangs and boy george is on the cover and it's a six page expose and it talks about it all yeah it was actually turned into a movie called lost angels where ad rock got his first like starring role oh, i That's know that about movie. yeah us and fff and a few other gangs from the valley it's a well, crazy yeah. story so we surrounded everlast we put him in the, we, we made a group around that and at the time like i said and, and i'll wrap this up is I loved hip hop so much, but all of a sudden I was, I felt like with the five percenter stuff that was going on, which is this prison or, or this, it's a sect of Islam that is five percenters and, and, and they're, it's like a prison sect more than it is anything else. Okay. And Farrakhan's a prophet. And I think you ought to listen to what he could say to you, what yeah. you ought to do. That's yeah. public enemy. One of my favorite groups. In the, but so I listened to Farrakhan and Farrakhan said, white really. people are the devil. So I'm like, I'm white. I'm not the devil. Why am I being called the devil? So I remember being like upset about hearing like, so now I'm not welcome. Like I got my back at the wall at the spots. I'm fighting for my place at the table in hip hop, even just to be a fan. And now my favorite bands are telling me that like, uh, I'm a devil. I'm the white devil. I'm like, whoa. So I was like, I went home one night. I'm like, what am I? It's my mother. My mother's like, your side of the family's Irish. You know, she's part Irish, Dutch and, and French, but right. my father's family come right off the boat i mean they're literally from county cork and so yeah right to ellis island i'm like yeah and i'm like bottom. i'm irish and that's what i so i all of a sudden i use that as my like 
I'm not white, but I'm white. I'm always white, but I'm saying I'm Irish white, whatever that means. We came over here because we were persecuted. We were Irish Catholics who came over here 50 years ago. You're the least respected person at one point in this right. country. That's so how it's my like, relatives so were, I'm realistically. Like, yeah. Yo, I'm like, that's me. And if you don't like it, fuck you. Yeah. You know, S- suck it. So my whole shit was my energy was that. And then I started to like all of my other dudes in, in, in my spot were like the same kind of energy even if they were black or mexican they were like dude we we were a ragtag bunch of dudes from the valley and in order to go to punk gigs back then or hip-hop gigs which were like it sounds like nothing but back then they were cutty and you could get lumped up if you did you just went in there you and your boy yeah you really had to be because you were catching it from mexican gangs you were catching it from black gangs you were catching it from and we're just suburban white too so we stuck together like glue and we had it and people started to talk like these motherfuckers you know sorry to keep cursing but no no you're fine yeah, but that's what that was the that's what they were talking about. Like these motherfuckers are are live ones, and so people start to be like, "All right, they're good. Let them go." You know what right. I mean? Let that. Let that. Don't fuck with them. There's easier victims out there, and so that really is the genesis of House of Pain. But it really came down. It was a reaction on my part to be like, "Look, I don't know why." the culture is mad at me other than I get the injustices of the world and you know, but I'm like, I'm just a fucking kid from New York. Sure. Who's loved hip hop from day one. Who's been involved in it at some level, even as just a peripheral fan. And now I'm, I'm the devil. Like what? And so I was like, fuck that. I'm Irish. I'm white. This is house of pain. And so I I felt like we should be unapologetic. And I said, Everlast, if you want to keep like let's do this and then he understood at that point and it was a turning point in like 91 where he was like yo this is like this is that and so he hooked up with Muggs who he knew from 7A3 who had just finished the Cypress record and the Cypress record had just come out and at first it wasn't a massive smash that was the self-titled one right self-titled one one of the best records in hip-hop of all time agreed because you know I was close to that crew I just that's arguably from top to bottom a fucking masterpiece yes and then you know mugs did three songs with eric and be real and it was you know jump around put your head out and come and get some of this and we sent out the demos and uh ironically we got signed to tommy boy we had offers from other people mm-hmm. but we got signed to tommy boy monica lynch a chicago native who ran you know the she was the vice president of tommy boy and she said man i've a million cds and tapes i get every day demos i looked in and seen this irish logo and i saw your photos i thought you guys could have been my brothers or my little cousins i said who are these guys i can't believe you know she just off aesthetics she played it and was like whoa oh fuck like she heard jump around she's like oh fuck now all that to say I'm a graphic artist and a marketing guy before I'm anything else. Okay. I worked at a record store at that time. I was the product manager at the warehouse, the, the, the chain, the record chain, the warehouse. I don't know if they were on the East Coast. I think it was a primarily a West Coast thing. But warehouse was like Music Plus or Tower yeah, Records. We had, or, yeah, we had Sam Goody and uh, right. those, those and ones. The Peaches and all, whatever. Yeah. So we had that. And I was able to, at that a young age, you know, at 17, 18, I, I stole more than we sold, bro. Like I was able to open every record and play it. This is before like I said, these kids now, they don't get it because it's, this is pre-internet. You just can't go on YouTube and listen to every song you want for free. No, I was breaking cases. I, <laughs> I'm i sorry. I, I'm pretty sure I stole your album. Hey, listen, high five. <laughs> I would have stole it too. I would have stole a handful and gave them to the boys and yeah. be like, check this out. Right. Bro, it's all good. And that's what we did. So it was like my music and movie IQ went through the roof working at that record shop. But also... And I'll never forget this. And my buddy, Ill Bill, shout out to Ill Bill from Lakoka. He laughs because he's a diehard metal fan that turned MC. And I was like 
a diehard b-boy who also was in a punk gang and listened to a little bit of like way alternative stuff but i remember taking off the shelf a celtic frost record thinking this is an irish band and it has nothing to do with irish and ireland it's just a hardcore they're probably like from sweden or denmark or something but bro it was at a time where like the only way you're going to hear what this is about is to take it off take it in the back open it play it and then throw it in the returns thing and go what i don't know who opened that where that came from right but i was able to listen to anything that my heart ever wanted to listen to and then some and i always credit them shout out to the warehouse it's long gone uh yeah you know i still know uh, i think her name is uh viola brown who was the main GM for the whole corporation. Right. She ended up becoming an A&R and, and working with a lot of hip hop groups at the time. She was, you know, but that is how House of Pain came about. It's incredible. We were all struggling. We were all, you know, Lethal came with the package. Um, shout out to DJ Lethal, one of the greatest humans you'll ever meet. Um, and, you know, we went off and we, with the demo, we got signed and we dropped that record and it blew up. And yeah, uh, number three was uh, Jump Around in the U.S. and number six in the U.K. Pretty good. Especially I'd say it's for, amazing. I'd especially for, that. you know, guys who, I'll speak for myself, but bro, even at a young age, it was like jails, institution or death. Those were the things yeah. that were like looking like directly, uh, you know, like I was doing, I, I was constantly preparing myself for a prison cell. Because my father had been that way prior to that. Right. My mother would always say, you're going to be just like him, be dead or in prison by the time you're 21. And the stuff I was doing was the stuff that would get you there. So I looked at it like, and that was part of the gang life too. A lot of these kids were coming out of, I mean, I did some little juvenile hall skid bids and whatnot. But a lot of the kids that I was running with were coming out of boys' homes and they were coming out of CYA, the California Youth Authority, and they were coming out of juvenile halls. They were the tougher kids. They were white kids who dressed like cholos and listened to hip hop and punk rock. And that's what we were. And that's what our gang was. And we were white kids that you would mistake if you were a cop and didn't know better for Mexican kids. Right. Listen to hip hop and punk rock. And, you know. That with a with a little bit of new wave. <laughs> oh, I like. It. Let me get this ad read out of the way real quick. Right. Uh, I'll tell you what's uh, far more comfortable than a juvenile hall. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and get it into. I really have to get better at segueing these, <laughs> so we get to keep our sponsors. Uh, but I will tell you what they don't have there, and it's Miracle Made sheets. Uh, if you want to sleep comfortable, honestly, I have them. They're really comfortable. They're self cooling. They are inspired by NASA. They are self cleaning. You can lay there. You can sweat. You can eat whatever you want. I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, clean them after you eat a bunch of cookies or whatever. But they're comfort. They're comfortable. The quality's high. I like Angela. You like them. I do. They I really, really do. They really are comfy. They feel a lot of A plus hotels use them. Four star, mm -hmm. five star hotels. I don't remember the highest star, but that's what I was going for when I was trying to pitch them. I'd say it's five. I go five. Yeah. I just. I really do love them. And we don't say yes to every sponsor, which you probably don't believe, but we actually turn some down. Like even gambling. I haven't, uh, I've said no to all those sponsors because I don't think it's right uh, to convince you to do that. So my own uh, opinion is these are good sheets. I highly recommend them. And you can get a discount by going to trymiracle.com slash normal. And you can get a discount as, as well as three free towels. That's face, body, and hand when you go there right now. Trymiracle.com dot com slash normal i really like their color selection too yeah you can pick it out yeah they'll let you they'll, they'll even let you pick, <laughs> pick you, the color it's not all about it's not about what they want yeah it's about you what about you want you. for your comfort yeah so you're 
you're huge at this point. I know who you are. My friends and I are all listening to this. And I've always wondered, did you think Jump Around was going to be the one that caught on? <laughs> so I'm laughing because it, it is the, you know, you you can imagine how many times I've got that. And then I've also had that thrown up in my face recently. And I'm going to tell you about it. Sorry. I didn't no, no, it's great. It. No, it's a, it's a, it's a valid question. And, and yes is the short answer. And yeah. I'll tell you why, because at the time, so my, my mother told me, you know, at 16, on my birthday around that time, she says, two more years. I'm like, two more years. She's like, two more years and I don't have to deal with you anymore. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, that's a. My dad had the same Irish mom. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so I was I like, oh, about... that's awesome. So I made sure I pop smoke and got out of there before I became 18. Right. And I moved to Hollywood and I got a little apartment right off of Melrose and um, it became the hangout. It was really good. It was great. I, I mean, bet. it was the greatest time, my, one of the greatest times of my life. And at the time, if you come from the San Fernando Valley, the trick is to get into Hollywood and stay there. You know, yes. and, and you, they always say the odds are good, but the goods are odd, you know. Yes. But if you were a comedian or an actor or a rapper, white rapper in the late 80s yes. and 90s, it was like, what? But there was a chance. And um, really good time there. And, um, I already forgot again what the, if you thought that was going to be the hit, but no. It, okay. So yeah. So yes. And the reason why is Everlast disappeared for a day. He went out to meet mugs. He had these songs written. I had heard the demo or no, I didn't hear the demo version. He came back with the demo tape and then he gave me a copy of the tape and I played it and I was like, wow. Okay. This is good. Cause mugs as a producer and a DJ, we didn't work with him originally. We were, like a five-piece band, and uh, House of Pain was like a band, and we were trying to do Chili Pepper-ish. You know, we were rhyming with a live band, sure. and nobody wanted to hear it. They were like, all the labels, they were like, you're either hip-hop or you're rock. There's no format for this on the radio. What are you doing? So we got rid of the band, and then we worked with Quincy Jones' son, QD3, and we did a three-song demo. Okay. And it was a little too R&B-ish, and, and then finally fed up, Eric was like, talk to Muggs. Muggs was just finished with the Cypress and was like looking for something. And I get a call one day and he's like, come down here, meet, meet Muggs. He wants to meet you and talk about this Irish thing. So Eric had so Everlast had sold Muggs on not only the, the music he wanted to do, but this Irish thing. And I think Muggs was the guy who hit the light bulb went off. He's like, Irish, mm, that's intriguing. Let me hear more. Because they were like the Cuban Afro-funk thing. Sure. And he was like, he understood the branding aspect of it. Where at the time, I don't think Eric did as much, Eric being Everlast. Maybe he did. But I'm just saying, like, that was my department. And I was the branding guy. It was like already on the logo for the Mickey's beer and... Oh yeah, I remember the that. Style and I drank. We already it had it, you know. We wore flannels and 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 slick back hair and yeah. and and and. Yeah, you had Mark definitely Martins. the cholo sort of look. Yeah, and yeah. it was like a mix between both of those. So, and Muggs got it when he met me. He was like, "Okay, now I can see this, whatever this is." And so, I played the demo. I got the demo after he worked on those three songs with Be Real and Muggs. Everybody used to come to my house. It was like a it was like a, a train station. I mean, swear to God, everybody the hottest place in, in LA at the time was Melrose. Yeah. And everybody who would go there, even people who didn't like me from high school would go to Melrose and then walk up to my apartment and go, Are you there? And they want to smoke a joint or, or drink sure. a beer or just hang out. And I started playing that. And when there's nobody at that age like your own your old your friends, because they will tell you there's no filter at that age, you're 17, 18, 19. And especially if you add drugs and alcohol. Yeah, the and equation. they would have said, Oh, this shit sucks, stop playing the same song. But we played it my whole living room went like bonkers 
And I played it again, and we just, we were like destroying my living room every time I would play that song. And I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is powerful stuff. And everybody who would have been like a little hater, you know, that, that wasn't even a thing then, but it was like anybody who would be critical was like, I could see it on their face. They were like, oh no, this is changes everything. Yeah, the jealousy goes to a little bit of it, respect. It, but yeah, 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 jealousy. yeah. There's a whole yeah. different, like, okay, this is something different. I'm going to have to contend with, like, this. you're going to change soon, aren't you? Because this is going to... And it's funny that we're talking about it and, and to lay it out that way because it wasn't soon after I started getting panic attacks because growing up, I had all the, had heard all the negative messages at home. You're going to be like your father, dead or in prison, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, people are like, yo, bro, you're going to be a fucking star, kid. Like, yo, bro, this shit is bananas dude you guys are gonna fucking blow up and when you hear that when you're not used to hearing that because you're like you know what i mean like you're pre-programmed to be like you're going to prison kid or you no, my mother used to have a good one too and god bless her you know i, I you know i gave as much as i took blah, blah, blah. and she used to say she was funny because i'd come home from the mall after racking a ton of shit and she's like yeah okay and i was like what and like she didn't know she's like you're gonna be the best dressed dude in prison kid you keep it up and i right. remember there was a running gag you know the best dressed dude in prison <laughs> well you're going from a self-fulfilled prophecy basically yeah going after what your father's life was yeah. into all of a sudden being 100%. the and complete opposite accepting yeah. that because when my mom would have a few beers she would tell war stories and they were always like you know this hero guy came out you know and then on another time she would tell me what a you know pos he was and so I just, I was always glorifying this guy who really photos is all I had. And photos, you know, I'll show you photos. You'll be like, oh shit, I get it. You right. Um, so I knew things were going to change for all of us. And it was more than just like hyping ourselves up or gassing ourselves up. I was like, this is different, bro. This is seriously different. And it was scary. Because it was like, it was like a Twilight Zone episode where people are like, who used to kind of give you, you know, just like whatever, be like, yo, bro, like all of a sudden they're being super nice, like wanting to be around. You're like, what the fuck, bro? Fame is a drug. Let me And, and proximity sure. to fame, proximity to wealth, proximity to anything that is a phenomenon or, 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 or phenomenal, people act different. And in that era, in those age, that age group will do anything. I mean, and I, I don't, like, I, I've never, it's probably never come up. It's probably some shit I should say for, like, a, 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 a tell-all. <laughs> right. But, you know, my girlfriend's friends were, like, pitching me on the low. Like, it's that intoxicating. And it wasn't because I changed in looks all of a sudden. It was because my status was starting to go, holy shit, this is going to really be something. And then once it came out on the radio, it was on, like, I remember going through the stations and hearing it on three different stations at once. Well, and that's a level heavy of heavy rotation yeah. on MTV. So they're playing it every half hour or every hour at minimum. Right. And it was just like everywhere we went, it was like carte blanche. And it was like, bro, we were like the toast of Hollywood. And we had just got there. Like we're Valley kids, but we had just got to Hollywood. So right. every club was like, come on in. Shit that we was, had no wins. You can't get no like Roxbury or, or Carlos and Charlie's if you were just regular, you know, white kids from the Valley. They're like, well, let alone get in line. Exactly. Like, but this was now like cutting, like just, it's just life changing stuff. And I don't know that anybody could, you can't prepare for that. You just don't, there's no like tools to be like, okay, don't let this go to your head. Well, especially you that know? era of fame too is what it's I'm kind of, it's, yeah, now it's, it's different. a bit different. There's so many different elements where you can find Yeah, and everybody's base. got a, you know, and a photo and a thing. But at that time it was like, you literally came from a, a, another world and all of a sudden we're like a if, deity, you know. If you heard it on the radio in LA and it was a hit, it was a, we heard it in Detroit. We heard it everywhere else. Like you were a monster mm -hmm. of success. Yeah. It like that. In that era. I mean, that quick. So the anxiety had to cripple you. 
It did. And I, I thought, you know, yeah, it was mine. I mean, honestly, I mean, just the way to put it. It came and went, thank God. It lasted yeah. for like what felt like, and then, oh, and then, now that I'm thinking about it, when our best friend, my best friend, Matt Champy, rest in peace, that's who the Jump Around video was dedicated to. He died suddenly. They stole Sorry. from, a, now listen, it was a stupid mistake. He stole, they stole two Whippet uh, nitrous oxide Oh, the tanks? Tanks from yeah. the hospital, because the hospital used to store them outside in a gated thing, and they cut the gate. Okay. They stole them. They drove around getting high off them, and they pulled into a store, stole balloons at like midnight. They got them on camera, and then they put those, they were in the back of a pickup truck, and they put the tube through the split window and closed it, and they were filling up balloons, and that- Oh, no. No scientists, but gas eats air, and, yep. and they ended up freeze-dried, and yeah. uh, it was shocking to all of us. Three people lost their lives that day, but one was my best friend. I mean, yeah. I say best friend, it wasn't like loosely based on like a good friendship. It was like my best friend. He was literally gonna be like a hype man in the group, you know? Yeah. And so it was devastating. And so I have like high highs all of a sudden, like super exceed anything you can imagine, almost Twilight Zone-ish, where it's right. not good. And then low lows, where you just lose your best. It was crazy, bro, so. So is your, uh, and, I've had that experience at that age, not the level of fame, but to, to know what it's like even to deal with loss and mm. that itself, let alone to have to deal with the fact that you're now huge. Yeah, because I, I guess, it, when, it, can I tell you something else? And Please. Again, I'm thinking out loud. Even when I was doing bad things, I never considered myself a bad guy. I just figured myself an opportunist in the sense of like, nobody's going to, I don't have a car waiting for me at 16, like all of my other friends sure. in the neighborhood. I don't have the clothes that I need to go to this high school where everybody else has guest jeans and taunts or taunt. You know, poor me as an adult, I can look back and go, so what? Suck it up. But at the time it was everything. So I stole the clothes that I wanted and needed. And I would, you know, and I did a lot of extracurricular shit that was like, but in my heart of heart, I was a good guy doing bad things. When you get that kind of, when I got that kind, I don't know what anybody else, but when I got that kind of stuff, it, it's a corruption or, or a thing that throws everything out of the, the natural balance of like God's balance of like, you like me now because of something that like Eric wrote it. I put the logo and the band together. Muggs produced it. But people are like jockeying that really were cold to you. And now they're like throwing themselves at you. And it just is like, it's unnatural. It's oh, a fucking complete perversion of like all of the senses. And, and, and one thing I am, I, I always stand on my business. I'm about principles, bro. Mm -hmm. Like your truth is your truth. And that, that's subjective. You know, everybody has a, 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 they perceive, they see something, they have a unique perspective. It doesn't mean it's the truth. You may believe it. My ex-wife was scared of heights. Doesn't mean I was scared of heights when we went to the stadium and I didn't feel like we were going to fall off the stadium. Right. She did. And it was a very real fear for her. So her fears are her facts, but they weren't my facts. But the principle is different, and I'm a very principled guy. And when you get that kind of fame and people treating you different because of something that you're a part of that is now viably, like, if there's, if there's some, like, you know, perceived, there was real value, but there's value to it, and they treat you different, it's, some people may go, cool, I don't care how it comes, just as long as it comes. I was kind of little, it always was one of those things, like, so now I can go to my, like, my girlfriend's house and her family, like, thinks I'm good? And I get it. You don't want a guy like me who's gang banging and doing stupid shit. Sure. But there's also a part of it where it's like, so really all it took was a little bit of money. Because I didn't change the behavior is what I'm saying. And everybody knew that. I was still fighting at night at every club. I was putting my hands on people even more. You know, I was still pistol packing. I still you could get popping. away with it more. Yeah, no doubt. But I didn't change. It wasn't like I changed for the better. My status changed for the better. 
for what people in Hollywood, my status changed and my economics, you know, got better. I started making good money, but if I wasn't acceptable to you then, we're trying to get by how they went when I knew how to get by. Cause again, like I have a learning disorder and I don't fucking, I don't read and, 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 and take them information good. And the ninth grade education and fear of failure and being a perfectionist, you know, if, if it's not perfect, then why bother? And that's an easy way to quit on everything. Absolutely. And then, you know, another thing, and, and then I'll end my TED talk, but like when you get used to like quitting out on something, everything becomes a fuck it. If it just gets difficult, I quit. And I don't know where I picked that up. I'm not blaming anybody in my house, but it's something that like, I, I just remember seeing at an early age where anytime something got difficult there, because I'm not doing it no more. And so it became, it became a, a thing. It was acceptable. And I, circ- I, you know, I had to come a long way to get away from that. And I didn't even know that that was a thing until I, you know, I did the work years later. But I try to, I don't have even really like real good relationships with people who do that kind of stuff because it's, it, it's contagious. Because anytime there's a problem, you're just out. Like you just take your ball and go home. Like I don't get down like that. And I don't, I don't hang out with people who get down like that because you're going to do that to me every time there's some difficult, there's a bump in the road. And life is life, life. It's a very, so yeah. Yeah. It, and I think especially when you're dealing in Hollywood and that is, uh, agents and in that money and people that are only in it for that money and you see that they don't 100%. actually work on any other principles. And you know it in your core that these people are just eating off your plate and you're just like, you kind of like one blind eye and then one it's so good, just pretend you don't see it. A little, it's a struggle. Yeah. A little piece of you doesn't want to believe it and then that little piece of you is shattered fair when, play. when it fair play happens to 100 percent. there's no other way to yeah it, you would absolutely understand and that is sometimes foreign to people and i know people and i me included you know there's things i think of back in the day if i you if i ever made a million dollars i'd never be broke well then i end up homeless you know or if you you know like i said that how could you be a child star and then, like, be not like, yeah, dude, because you don't get it. Like, you, you people don't have pity. Well, they had everything. Is yeah, and it it melted their minds because it's unnatural for people to be treated at such a like god level. You imagine being a child star, man. Oh, and then imagine being Corey Haim or one of those type of like, and then where, abandoned. Yeah, and then molested and all of the things. And yes. it's like no wonder these kids didn't have a fighting chance at all. And when you look back, you're like, I wouldn't trade. I would have traded seats with them and uh, uh, life with them on any uh, the drop of a hat now i look back whoa, 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 like wouldn't trade nothing for that well and it's not a surprise that somebody like as talented as river phoenix died in front of the viper room because you have to look at somebody who he was great at escaping his life into a character exactly and then he died escaping his life i mean that's it, it's not all that shocking and just I, like many before him i mean absolutely. i i've watched a ton of you know, true Hollywood mysteries with the, you know, AJ Benza. I've, I've always liked the, where are they now? It's like, we were talking, were we talking on, on air about Detroit? And we were, and, uh, we're not on air, but I we were forget, discussing yeah. it before, but there was it a lot of It should be a prerequisite for, for students to go see a city that was formerly like that great of a city and then watch how it fell into disrepair and what happens, because then you will take everything a little bit more, you know, not so much with a grain of sand because it can happen to any, it can happen to our country right now, which is a whole other crazy thing. But... Well, and even talking about where you can stuff can lead, you were talking about visiting Marvin Gaye's house, uh-huh. and you're talking about his father who shot him. I and, remember. And one of my prized possessions is uh, what uh, what's going on, or uh, and it's signed by Marvin Gaye, and it's 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 on my wall, and I've I've never played the record because it's just very it means a lot to me. And when when you have something like that, somebody who was so amazing, it shows you where drugs and everything else can take you to the point where his dad just 
basically had that very old school look of like, all right, I just have to take you out. Um, and listen, I, you know, I guess the, the, what we're getting at is, is that, you know, as you get older, you have empathy for things that you go like, Why whatever loser, you had it all when you were 17, you, you squandered it. Like, yeah, dude, like this, <laughs> it's a crazy business, man. It's a crazy life without that business. But that business is like, it's like looking through something that's already distorted through another distortion, through another distortion, through another. And you think you're seeing, and you got to know it's not. Like, and for the very few, it's still real. Like, and to assume a child surrounded by yes men has the wherewithal to get through life after and that? family eating off your, like living off your checks. And I, I mean, it just can't be right. Like it can't be, it can't, it's so unhealthy. It's ridiculous, but I'll leave it at that. It's not what I can, you know, like I didn't come to talk no, about no, anything, but I, I do a, want to talk about that a bit. Cause you know, I, I, <laughs> you and I, uh, it's scaring me. That's why I like, no. I'm like, I can stop, make it stop. Cause I'm, I'm glad. No, you and I are both, it, you know, in recovery. And I, I wanted to talk to you about that if yeah. that's all right, I'd and, love and to. you became. I'm an open book, bro. I appreciate that a lot. And um, your first drug of choice was alcohol, and I, as you've no, uh, I, yes, I'd be cheeky, but if, and I'd be honest with you, was was escapism, like fantasy, like that's what I said. Like okay. my, in my mind, I always tell people, man, and they think I'm I'm being cheeky, but Pippi Longstockings was my like my hero growing up. They used to play that Pippi Longstockings, those four different TV shows. Are you familiar with who yes. she is? And what I liked about her, she had that can-do spirit. She had a box of gold upstairs, but she didn't even care about it because she just dressed ragtag. And she was, she made the best of everything. And she took care of Tommy and Annika. And when they wanted to do something, she would go upstairs and get a hot air balloon and tie it to her bed. And her and Tommy and Annika would fuck right off to Pirate Island. And right. she'd fight pirates. And I was just like, that's all I want. I want a couple of good friends and somewhere I could just go where we could just do whatever we like to do pirate things with my pirate friends and just sub navigate this whole bullshit called life. Cause it just was never like, I always felt a stranger in my own home. And so fantasy was the first one. And then when I got old enough to start to drink way before I was illegally allowed, I mean, I started drinking about 14 and a half, 15 and pretty late compared to most kids. Yeah. Mine was 14, 13 right in there. But I remember w with not only sufficient force, but I remember like it was yesterday, the first drink that worked. So I had a few mishaps, you know, I drank some amaretto that we stole from my mother and I threw up for like a day and a half in the bushes. Yeah. I didn't even like the smell of almonds for years, but. Is it the look of the bottle? Why is it that one? Because those are the ones nobody cares about. They're liqueurs that oh, yeah. everybody <laughs> drinks at a holiday and nobody will notice if they're gone. So if I pulled a couple <laughs> beers out of the fridge, my mother would know immediately. That's a good point. Yeah. Cause you always go for the one. Yeah. The peppery schnapps. It. And yeah. all, you know, I was <laughs> drinking like, you know, corn syrup with like, with, like, oh. uh, with grain alcohol, but yeah, yeah, I threw up violently and just probably shit the couch, but whatever. It wasn't until I had a, a screwdriver, a vodka and orange that it went down and it did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. And I know now with doing the work and long time of recovery, that the things that changed for me fundamentally that night at that nightclub was one, it changed the way I felt you were looking at me. Mm-hmm. And that was something because I always felt you were looking at me with like, you're a piece of shit. You ain't good enough. You're this, that, you're that. And then the, the other thing that changed that night fundamentally when that thing happened was the way I felt about myself. Cause I was always like, fuck you. You know, I was, I was the guy was like, look at me, look at me. What the fuck are you looking at? You know, I couldn't tell which I, and, but in, in my head, I already knew you thought I was a piece of shit. Cause I thought I was a piece of shit. Because if your own mother thinks you're a piece of shit and you're nobody in you, your, your family is like, you know, giving you that, I got to be a piece of shit. And how dare you see it, too? So fuck you. And it was just like that. So that drink, all of a sudden, man, it was like my clothes fit better. I felt better looking. I could dance. I could talk to girls. 
Yeah. Prior to that, I couldn't dance around girls, man. I knew how to dance, but I couldn't do it around a girl because I was terrified of rejection and being laughed at and sure. have a couple beers. And I'm like, whoa, a couple drinks, screwdrivers. And so I remember that night, not only those two things changed, I remember thinking to myself, why did I wait so long for this? To do, to, to, to like, why did this take so long for it to work? And then my second thought was like, I never want to not feel this way again. And I drank every time I was outside of that house, and which was probably five, six times a week. Cause my mother was like, you know, it's that warmth. wake me when you come up, so when you come, come in. So we'd sneak yeah. in the window at night, but I would go out. I lived a couple blocks away from a nightclub that was a teen nightclub called Phases. And everybody who grew up in the San Fernando Valley remembers hot tracks and phases. And mm -hmm. we lived there. It was like going to the mall at night. It was all kinds of cute girls and all kinds of cool dudes and drinking and drugging. I did not get into drugs back then. I was terrified of them. I only drank, but... And I cut my teeth at that place, man. I got sure. into music and other stuff that I wasn't, you know, predisposed to love. Like, you know, all of the new wave stuff, Susie and the Banshees and all of the club music. You know, I, I was predisposed to like it, but I just wasn't like, wasn't as cool as if you're not in the club to listen to. But I started talking to girls, started having sex, started fighting if there wasn't no girls. It was like, you know, you write a passage of doing that stuff. And um but I never went out without having a drink in my hand. And it would just, we went to all, whether stealing the beer, pimping it, which was, you know, standing out in front of the liquor store asking older dudes, hey, brother, hey, we didn't bring our ID. Could you get us, you know? Hey, a homeless guy. Or oh, whatever, bro. Find the right store where you can use your ID. And of then course. the guy will charge you $50 for a <laughs> case. Yeah. But we always that, found that a way. That warmth, though, right? That warmth that yeah. starts here and will just fill you with confidence and just sure, that. Sure, but it fills that hole. It fills that, that void. You know, what I know now yeah, is that God-shaped hole for yep. me. But That's at right. that time, it was just like, bro. And I'll say this. It's, it's, it's hysterical, man. And I've said it a million times if you've heard me share at you know at, at 12 step meetings but one time and it was later in my sobriety that i heard a transvestite and this was back when like you didn't see that wasn't even a word on most people's you know like but there was a transvestite and she was um sharing one day and she said the first time i had ever drank it made me feel wittier prettier and tittier and i was like fuck yeah and i was like oh 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 <laughs> <laughs> and I, it was a metaphor, but I got it. I'm sure. like, dude, that's a dude who's now identifying as a woman. And when she drank, she felt weirder, prettier, and tittier. And I was like, fuck yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I'm just a man. And I just used the other. And I was like, perfect way to sum that up. Because even though, you know, it made, and when I drank, it just, every, the possibilities were endless. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't optimistic in my normal state. It wasn't, it was like, I always thought you just, it's not going to work. How can this work? And when I had a few beers, I was like, how could it not work? You can do this. You can. And that is a, that's a great equalizer when you have self doubt and negative self talk and it's been reaffirmed and, and confirmed by anybody you hold on high. Especially when you're an insecure perfectionist. A hundred percent, dude, hundred percent. 100%. I never even heard that before. I'm, I'm also an introverted uh, extrovert, you know, but those are all real things. Very much so. You know, and as you know, in recovery, it's like, you know, egomaniacs with low self-esteem. Like, I don't yes. like to think I'm an egomaniac, but then again, treat me halfway, you know, you'll find out. And then I'm like, I ain't shit anyway, so it doesn't matter, you know, but to find the center and to find the balance is, is where I, where I like to, you know, live in that area you know i never want to be the coolest dude in the room i have never been the coolest dude in the room but if you are you're in the wrong room right underachieving you know oh, i, I never want to be the worst dude <laughs> right yeah you're the coolest dude in the room no no i'm just kidding oh. 
<laughs> we all know I'm not. Hey, listen, you can have <laughs> it tonight. I'm a comic. It's your, it's day, at least. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hell no, I'm not today. But what was your and if you and again if if you don't mind me asking, like, what's that moment where you where you hit bottom and you finally said which time? Because we're kind of running. I don't want to run out because this is you way are. too good of a conversation. I don't yeah. want to run out of time. Because, um, yeah, I guess there is always the first try, which I've experienced myself, which involved institutions, lockup, all that. Yeah, I did all that. Yeah. And then what's the moment where you just... I, it is, it's such a cliche to say sick and tired of being sick but it and isn't. tired, but that's the feeling It is you have 100%, and that's why those cliches work. So I'll give you the elevator pitch because I would like to talk about the outsider's house because it's life-changing stuff. Yes. So... By the time I'm 30, I'm, I'm, I'm bankrupt. The house of pain is over. Um, my house got repossessed. My cars got repossessed. My mind was bent. My, I was depressed. I was couch surfing and faux homeless. I end up running into a friend who's sober and he's about my age. And I always thought he was weird because he was a good looking dude and a cool dude. But I was like, he's always at coffee houses hanging out with these weird people. And they was happened to be, you know, 12 step people. And he said, why don't you come to a meeting with me? And that time I was ready. I had already been in rehab before and was just doing it to get people off my ass. But this time I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I don't remember who spoke. I don't remember what they said, but I remember hearing laughter. Yeah. And it had been a long time since I heard laughter. Now, I want to also back that up. I had then from, I went from drinking in the mid nineties. I started to do ecstasy. And then by the end of house of pain, when it was at the end, I had already started doing methamphetamines, which was the drug of choice in Hollywood at the time. Yeah. I dabbled in Coke, but didn't love it. Yeah. Uh, meth I did like, and, um, and ecstasy always had at that time a little bit jammed into it too. And yes. And you couldn't yeah. even do it habitually though, if you wanted to, it was like mm -hmm. one of those things you could do and then you have to wait three days. And I didn't have I mean, three your, days to your wait. brain would just drop to that depression. Yeah, it was really bad. Yeah. So all that to say, um, it was, I was, getting really bad out there for me and I was really running into a lot of problems and um, in all areas so I end up getting sober go to the second meeting don't remember what they said don't I just remember how I felt there was like welcome 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 are you new welcome give me a welcome chip it didn't feel funny to identify I was already, I felt like I was home and I started to put one step uh, one foot in front of the other I started working on my steps got that guy to sponsor me started taking commitments, did everything they did in one year, got my one year K, couldn't believe it, started becoming employable again, got a solo record deal, worked all year two on this record. Year three comes around and I started to be too cool for school, had some outside stuff again, man, maybe I started to, the record ended up not coming out, label folds up, give me my record back, I feel like a little like, you know, I spent all the money that they had gave me, which is like, you know, about a quarter million dollars in sure. advances and half a million dollars, or quarter million in publishing, it was about half a million dollars all in. Mm -hmm. And um, now I'm like running on empty again. And I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. You know, I, I, in my crazy head, I thought that like once I got clean, I'd get the cash and prizes. And that was just part of getting clean. And, and you'd know how to manage comes, it, right? And, right, and, but, and how did you do it again? It's your fault. Exactly. And, yeah. So I decided to my, 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 my uh, head that I was probably a meth head, but clearly I'm Irish. I should be able to handle the drink by now. It is three years and some change sobriety. And I thought, you know wasn't that bad how bad was it you know right. and the book says if you know the book that i read says if you don't think you're an alcoholic go try it go try it and so i tried it and it was i was wildly successful drinking for about 72 hours and i was right back on methamphetamines and it was another almost three years downward spiral ended up in a warehouse with no teeth in my mouth faux homeless basically it wasn't it was a friend who was let me stay in his old warehouse but it was no there was no bed there was no 
And I, by the skin of my teeth, somebody offered to take me to a meeting and I had been to many before and just wasn't going to, it felt like I was never going to get it again. It just like, it was a gift the first time. And this time one night something changed. I don't know why, and, but I had to get right with the idea that if all I got out of sobriety was sobriety, that it had to be enough. And it was. And this time I didn't want my old life back. That was the secret I had originally. I just wanted a chance at a new life. And, uh, in April on the 15th, that'll be 19 years. So it's been Congratulations. really good run. Um, I will tell you this, you know, life on life's terms is difficult no matter what. It's it's high highs and low lows. And I, like I said, I shoot for even keel now. I know that sounds a little boring, but it's like where I live. The truth. And, you know, I right out right when I got sober this time, close to nine, it's close to 20 years ago, well, 19 years ago. I started La Coca Nostra, which is a side project, which inevitably brought back House of Pain as a one band with other dudes with us. And we had a nice little run at that, but then that fell apart for different reasons. And, and I worked on the clothing company and it was, we turned it into a million dollar company. And then me and the dude had a falling out and they did me dirty on the one end and they think I did everybody's you know so I had a lot of like really cool things and then come crashing down in sobriety I was married for 10 years and then I'm going through a divorce which I never thought in a million years that that was going to happen and that was kind of why you were buying the house right yeah it was why, why when I bought the outsider's house but to get to the outsider's houses which I'm trying to do is that you know we went on tour in 2009 with La Coca Nostra and we played Kane's Ballroom which is this fantastic it's like the cbgbs of the midwest I'm but very lucky to have played it oh i'm very lucky to have played box it on yeah, the, yeah it was one of the list. coolest experiences same yeah. yeah and so for me it was always on that list but we had we had went over it when we had in 92 that was too small of a venue for us but now it was a perfect size we played it and that's when i had the epiphany while i was in tulsa i was like man i felt like i've been here before but i never was and i go oh my god the outsiders and that began, that was the day, first day of the rest of my life. I went looking for locations. I found the drive-in from the movie, The Outsiders. I found the park from the movie. And by finding the park, I found the house. And I was obsessed. And the park is still there where he gets All stabbed? still there, oh, yeah. So You're going to come visit. I'm, gonna I'm seriously you. coming come. down. Yes, please. And I can't thank you enough for inviting me. No, listen, and you. you're four hours away. It's not that big of a drive. I have no problem one driving flight, that dude. at all, dude. Me neither. No, I'm a driving drive. Guy. Yeah, me too. So... I took photos out front of it, and then I took a photo of a hole that's punched in the wall at Kane's Ballroom. They now have it in the office, and allegedly Sid Vicious punched a hole in the wall on his way out of the green room when the Sex Pistols played in 78. And I was, at the time, very good friends with Steve Jones, the guitar player. So I posted on Facebook, which was this new thing. We were still kind of MySpace guys. The hole that Sid Vicious punched in the wall, and they me in front of the outsider's house. And people went bad shit for this thing back in the days you'd be lucky if you get three four likes because people were sure. so like what does that mean if i like it does he think you know right <laughs> but they went crazy for this you like that one because yeah. you, re <laughs> you remember people were like gun shy like if it does i mean i like her if i put a like on there or does he think i'm like Did fucking him? what am i yeah. <laughs> just people were so like so it got crazy likes and i'm like oh my god i'm on to something here so I started going on all of those things, which I told you, the Delta Bravo Urban Exploration Team. I try to say that three times fast. But if you Google that, you'll see the squad that came out of that. That's really what I built. And what I realized was we're at the age now where we have a phone in our hand that has the access to the largest library ever known to humankind, which is Google. Mm -hmm. We have navigation. We have better than Magellan could ever do for you. You have a basically a VHS, a VH, you have a camera, a video camera, a station, whatever your Twitter and, and MySpace and Facebook and, and Instagram or whatever you're on. We live in an era which is very unique. And so what I started to do on that tour, because I was sober and everybody else was high, every time we would go to, I would look for uh, pop culture, historic locations, whether that was the Son of Sam in Manhattan and looking where all the crimes happened in the Queens or 
where Mickey Mantle's buried when we got to Dallas and or where we got to the grassy knoll or yeah, any of those is Tulsa too where Sam Kennison's buried yeah well yeah, I went there it's where too. he's from too yeah, 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 yeah. I went to because I, I did I do the same thing and I went to right. see his grave when I was we there. all kind of do and that's the yeah. beautiful thing so we're at that generation where we're looking back now at this history and it's remarkable history and it's incredible because we grew up raised by there you go raised by the television and raised by these iconic things and now we have a we have the ability to go back and see and you so that's the that's our page page we kind of abandoned that there is a secret page or a, a mm-hmm. member page and you won't have to look for it or nothing but if you're interested delta bravo urban exploration private page and we'll accept it it's people from all over the world that love pop culture and it does the before and after but that's what that's when I realized I'm onto something here. And there is something that to be said about this outsider's house. Cause that's the first one I had ever found and did, and did the before and after mash. And I started to think about this house. Why isn't somebody turned this in a museum? Or why isn't this saved like the Christmas story house is? And that was a thing at the time. And the, way the dreams yeah. was a thing. So those were two things already. Right. But I was like, this is incredible. And at the time the house was for sale for 42 grand, bro. I'm coming from Beverly Hills at the time. Let me right. just, and not, you know, I'm not trying to say that to sound pious or oh, like, it's, oh, it's, it's but I lived in a little apartment off of, of a Rexford and <laughs> yeah. Olympic, but it, yeah, it, I, you couldn't park a third car in, in that neighborhood for, for 42 grand right. annually. Yeah. So I could not believe one, that house was still on earth two that it could be had for 42 grand and three that it's sitting on the market nobody wanted it so fast forward five years started to do the delta bravo thing religiously is like my full-time passion project um and i would go somehow i would make a beeline for that house every time i was crossing the u.s whether it was going to detroit to urban explore going to pete rose's childhood home or larry bird's grandmother's house where he learned to play basketball i was hitting all over the u.s looking for historic locations and i would always come back to the outsider's house and at year five i realized that the habitat for humanities was coming through that neighborhood wholesale tearing everything out and i thought every year i watched them come one block closer so it's like it's basically a block a year and i'm like next year i'm going to come and it's going to be gone so i started to I'd watched a few things that I loved prior get torn down and I thought somebody doesn't save this thing it's going to be done and I started to dig around and with a little bit of help we found the owner we told her we know it's off market but if you ever think of selling it she said your timing is impeccable I used she said I wanted 42 for it but I won't take a penny less than 20 my friend countered and said ma'am I've seen the house it's a shit show I won't give you more than 15 grand she accepted the tenants were five, eight months behind in rent, and she said, you're going to have to deal with that. They owe me money, but they're not. In. So it was a lot to deal with. I get to the house. I basically thought I robbed her for 15 grand. When I got to the house, it was I got 15 grand worth of shit. Trust me. It was a teardown. Oh, yeah. But it was the most beautiful thing that had ever happened. I panicked, and in panicking, I asked for help. And I always this is where I always, when I talk to kids, my whole life, I've been covering up that I don't know a lot. Mm-hmm. And to tell you that I don't know a lot is easier for me than to ask for help. I don't know, man. I got ninth grade education. I don't know, you know. And because somewhere along the line, I felt it was instilled in me that that's a weak position, ask for help. But what I know as an adult is it's the strong position. It's humbling yourself Mm -hmm. and asking anybody, because anybody you know that is real with their shit is going to be like, how can I help? I'd love to show you how I do this, that, or the third. But growing up, I almost like it almost killed me many times because I needed the help, and I, I I literally couldn't get the word out. I need help, and I need instruction, or I need you to show me how. And for the first time in my life, I just humbled myself because of sobriety and what I had learned, and I said, guys, I bought this house. I have no money to move forward. I have no plan. 
other than to save it and to turn it into a museum. And I have no way of like, I don't know anything about re, would you, you know, redoing anything. Would you help? And the help was overwhelming. And the most came from the, the just everyday Tolsons. And I started to go back and forth and realize that like, why am I going back to LA? But the love is here. Yeah. I fell in love with the town. I fell in love with the people. I met the author. The author gave me a nice little check. Um, but it was really like people like the neighbor was like, hey man, your grass is up to here. Let me cut your grass for you. And what happened was when we started taking care of the outsider's house, the neighbor started to feel some type of way and they started to take care of their house and it had a nice ripple effect. And then the city came back and redid that whole side of town that had been long on the list of take care of that side, but they didn't. And finally, when we put enough eyes on it, uh, well, and that was the working class neighborhood across from less than that. Yeah. It yeah. was very, it was, it was the old, uh, auto salvage yards and right. Real like working class. Like, yeah, cause it was the working color. Cause it was the greasers versus Sosha's. hundred percent. And then, okay. And it is the official, it's the house that they filmed in. The park is right on the corner. Coppola pulled up in 82 and he used a school that had been shuttered as his base camp in his studio, similar like this, you know, it's like a big building right. that they could just run. And he did the outsiders and mid outsiders. He discovered that he wanted to do another book of hers called Rumblefish. Rumblefish, yeah. That they did those movies back to back two weeks down after. Oh really? Uh-huh. And both what? are filmed there and both are classics. What I always loved about that was kind of like the way he, he, demanded to shoot in Sicily for the Godfather is the way that he did it with Tulsa where it just yes. had to have that feel. And I'm sure it was to the to the chagrin of, of every executive at Warner Brothers because they were like you. are you fucking kidding me? You want to go all the way? You want to take everybody from Hollywood and bring them to Tulsa Oklahoma in 82 when there's no internet and there's no cell phones? Nope. Really? But he did it and to his credit that's why they play so well not only for everybody but for really for, Oki, for Okies because it is like the pride of that whole community and what I found so I, I made a museum it took three and a half years to do it okay. I had one poster and one book and now I have the largest collection of Outsiders movie and book collection known to man and woman and what I thought I was building was a, a was a greaser museum for middle aged dudes like me and you or I'll speak for me you know uh, and what I ended up building by default was a 7th grade educational museum because we get we do Monday through Thursdays. We're close to the public. We do school tours. We did over 4,000 last year. We're scheduled to about 8,000 this year. And it's almost done. And, we've done. and it's basically word of mouth. And on the weekends, we do anywhere from 100 to 150 people a day. No advertising except for the social media posts that we post. Um, it's just been an incredible thing. And then I get asked to speak at all kinds of civic events and to speak to all kinds of school students. And what I tell them is my story. I tell them about the good, the bad, and the ugly. How I grew up, what happened, the bad choices I made. Music saves me, but it also then destroys, you know, because it, right. it arrested the, the, the consequences and, the, and the, the, that comes with the life that I was living prior to music. And when music was over, I went back to, right back to the thing I knew best was crime. And then I became a drug addict and now I'm sober. And now, you know, this house has been a mitzvah to me, but it's also something I put forward as, you know, it's a, it's a pay it forward thing. Yeah. And I get to speak to kids and maybe I don't reach them all, but I reach a few and the ones that, that they needed to hear what I said, because what I tell them is the stuff that nobody told me. One, ask for help. If you need help, there's nothing, there's only, it's weak. If you don't, it's strong when you do and anybody who will. And I also tell them, listen, you're going to see your shot sometimes in life and you're not going to have the money to do it. You might not have the education to do it or the skill and you might not even have a well thought out or laid out plan and all three of those are really ideal when doing these kind of projects but there are going to be times where you don't have any of those but you have passion and you see your shot take your shot and I wish somebody would have told me that sooner and I don't know if I would have believed it but I took my shot so it's proof positive and it's I'm yeah. proof of concept this is doable so all of that to say we've been open about three and a half years 
it's been a wonderful experience. I bought a house across the street, turned into an, a greaser Airbnb. It's pretty much like the museum light. And the goal now is to build an S.E. Hinton Museum, which will be an, a, a campus-like situation where kids can come learn about screenwriting and writing and acting and music and all of it and mix all of her stuff, text, the Outsiders, Rumblefish, that was then, this is now, and 11 other novels that she wrote and, and really champion the young Susie, who was 15 and a half, failed English and got a D-plus in creative writing, yet she persisted despite those things, and she's an American legend and icon. Yeah. Oh, and... She wrote about her life and created her own art. That's right. And last week, we had Angelina Jolie and the cast of The Outsiders, the musical, which is going to be on Broadway in yeah. April. And this was just this weekend. I mean, I just come out of that right now. So this, this saga continues. And I love the Rob Lowe and signing the towel in the picture with him and his son, visiting it and We've had, where it all started. We've had and, most of the cast Incredible. come through. It's easier for me to tell you who hasn't been there than who yeah. has, but Matt Dillon's been there. Ralph's been there many times. See Thomas Howell is like my, my ace in the hole. He comes through. He's coming back to do movie on the lawn and, and Q&As at the house in a, in a month or so. We're hoping to get Emilio one day, Tom, and 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 Diane Lane. You know, That'd be amazing. We, we've got, yeah, but uh, um, to be continued, man. Yes. Um, well, we're about to run out, but I'm I would like to come visit it if that's uh, yeah, well, very cool. I'm going to insist on it. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I don't know if we even allowed to bring cameras. but You I, bring everything. Yeah, okay, of course. We're going yeah, to do we, this. Yeah, we, we can do a podcast on the couch at the Outsider's house. We could do a remote. We're going to continue this then there, if that's cool. Because it would be a, a dream yeah. of mine just because I love the movie. And it. I, I really, really enjoy talking to you. And I can't thank you enough for coming on today. My man. Um, how can we get to the outside? Can you tell us uh, anywhere I mean, where yeah, we can check it out? Yeah, I mean, just theoutsidershouse.com okay. or any of the social media. Media's we're on there, and I, you know, it's a, it's a cool little community, man. Uh, the fandom is real. And is there anything else you'd like to promote while we have you? No, just uh, stay gold. There you go. All right. Well, you stay gold, Danny boy. I appreciate you coming on, my friend. All right. Well, thank you guys very much. You can check, obviously, my, my tour dates out at DaveLando.com. I got a lot coming up. Um, but please check out The Outsider's House. It really is amazing what he's been able to do. It's following a dream and a passion. And uh, if you're ever out there just uh, struggling with sobriety or anything else, there are people like we've just oh, talked yeah. to and absolutely three in the description. And we do listen. It's 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 pretty much it's not on the books, but we do a we do a twelve uh, twelve and twelve reading. We do a book study at the Outsiders House gift shop. It's really open to anybody. We just have limited space. But seven if you live locally and you want to come by at seven p.m. on Monday nights, or even better, we do a we do a, a speaker participation meeting at the. Circle Cinema in Tulsa, Oklahoma, every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Be there or be. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, sir. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow. Good night.